The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. The all-important Mercedes Imola upgrade, how F1 television tech has evolved, and getting rid of front and rear wings. Gary tackles all that and more. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, but more importantly, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, a veteran of decades in Formula One, mechanic, car designer, technical director, journalist. You've done just about everything over the years. So how's things? Yeah, no, things are good. The sun's shining. I'm looking forward to uh, the next few weeks. I mean, this is a a triple header of European races, Um, quite a mix between uh, Imola uh, Monaco and, and Barcelona so you know we've got a nice mix there of different tracks um, and again we keep saying it after after these three I think we'll get a, a better picture of where we are because uh, you know people are bringing lots of stuff to this first first round of European races so it's quite important to to get your act together and, and start scoring points now if you haven't been uh, doing so from the past for everybody it's going to be difficult to catch Red Bull you know they're, they're a team that seem to be on top of everything at the moment from you know, from lap, from performance, um, from the, the maximizing the driver um, talents, you know, together basically, and then not you know first and second in all the races with um, with big points. So it's going to be difficult for any team to get in there. But hopefully, hopefully somebody will. I don't want to say I want to see Red Bull losing, but I do want to see more competition because more competition is what racing should be all about. Yeah, I must admit, I do quite like this triple header because it's got a couple of conventional circuits in it as well. And we've had quite a lot of weird tracks this year uh, so far, or unusual ones. So it's nice to have Imola and Barcelona uh, in particular. And of course, it's going to be quite a big weekend with upgrades, etc., uh, weather allowing. So as usual, we'll start with the open talking point for you to choose. But I guess it's pretty obvious with Imola and so many upgrades coming up, what sort of area you'll be wanting to pay close attention to. Yes, I mean, uh, obviously upgrades are the thing that every team brings, but the, the main the main focus at the moment seems to be on what Mercedes are bringing. They've been talking a lot about it, um, and it's relatively probably as big an upgrade as any team that's going to appear in uh, in Imola. Ferrari as well are, are bringing along some stuff. So, you know, upgrades are great. Um, the, the days that we used to have, uh, you know, the, the driver in the loop simulation, um, and you could sort of optimise your upgrade before you got to the track, you know, they are sort of, a little bit long gone um, because of the, the ground effect nature of these cars. So if you're upgrading the car to change the performance of the underfloor, you really do need to go to the circuit and run and just get your head around it all because the, you know the, not very many teams are able to predict the porpoising and the bouncing that we saw with these ground effect cars to begin with. So it's still a very grey area as to uh, are your upgrades you know, going to bring you lap time at the track or are they bringing you lap time theoretically in the simulation and hence better numbers in the wind tunnel? So there is no substitute now with the cars we've got to actually running on the on the track. And that's great to see us back there because it does equalize things a little bit. You know, that it does help the smaller teams that don't have maybe the, the high-end technology simulation tools um, to actually do a reasonable job. So um, upgrades-wise, you know, I'm sure the Mercedes will look a bit different. Um, because I think pressure will mean that they need to look a bit different. Will it look a bit like a Ferrari or will it look a bit like a Red Bull? I think it'll probably still look like a Mercedes. We'll just get a bit of a, a wipe over because it's, you know, what we see is not necessarily what makes the car ultimately perform. It all works together. 
and that's the, the important thing. We just need to make sure that that you know you focus on the area that brings you lap time, if you can do that. Now the the sort of side pod, the, the zero side pod that Mercedes have been running, you know, it, it you, you have to duct and redirect airflow uh, across the top of the car to help the rest of the car up, work well. So you you know have a no sort of top, I suppose you might call it on that. Um, the undercut on the side pod means that airflow can can go in a different direction to what it can on the Red Bull or the Ferrari. And I think if you don't focus it on a certain area to help scavenge the sides of the floor, then you potentially can lose a lot of airflow from the, uh, a lot of downforce from underneath the car. Um, obviously, Mercedes let it go around the car and, and through between the rear wheel and, the, and the, um, the gearbox or the side of the gearbox through that diffuser gap as such. But to help the diffuser, but it doesn't help the front of the floor work so well. So that's an area where I think that the, the, what we see can influence what we don't see. And that's important. And obviously then we've got the thing about uh, controlling it all. Once you get the underfloor working, you get the car to a certain ride height. The most important thing is maintaining that ride height for as big a percentage of, of time as possible around a lap. And, uh, you know, the driver normally gets his confidence when he hits the brake pedal for a corner. That's where you get your... You know the idea of what the stability of the car is like. Can you really sort of just tuck it into the corner and sort out the next problem, or are you sort of on tiptoes, thinking, "Oops, I'm not sure what's going to happen here," and uh, that's whenever you need to control that platform and make sure it's as stable as possible. Um, so, Emily is a big race for for a lot of people, um, and there's changes. You know, the, obviously the weather down there is not as good as it is in England at the moment, which is a very strange thing to say, but that's true. Uh, there's a lot of rain about. And uh, this, this new tyre allocation, cutting the tyres from 13 sets per, per driver to 11 per driver, you know, sometimes I wonder about those things because you can't, you can't run as much if you've got less tyres. So are we going to see a bit of a reduction in running and everybody focusing a little bit more just on the, on the, the, the qualifying and the race as such, keeping tyres for that? Um, it's the first weekend of that change. There's only, I think it's happening twice this year. But it's the first weekend of that, that change. And I suppose in reality for, for teams like Mercedes and Ferrari who are arriving with lots of different bits and pieces, it's probably the wrong time for it to happen. Because I think, you know, whenever you go to, to back-to-back some stuff on the car or optimize the setup a little bit, you really do want to run as much as possible. And if that means firing another set of tires on the car, then that's what you would do. Um, because it's more important to get the, uh, the best out of the car you can than save a set of tires. But as I say, with 11 sets opposed to 13, you might see a little bit of redu- a reduction in running. Yeah, the alternative tyre allocation, as it'll be referred to, or ATA, because F1 loves a little bit of jargon. It is interesting, though, the way things have changed from how they were before the ground effect era, because previously it would just be, right, do these parts work as expected? It's still a challenge now, but then it was just, right, we think it will create this downforce, it will make this improvement to the airflow regime. But with these cars, it's actually quite easy to draw a floor that will generate a lot of downforce, hypothetically. I could probably even do that. I wouldn't have a chance in hell of making it actually work in the real world because of the need to control that ride height. So that does probably fundamentally change how you go about running things, doesn't it? Because you need to run through a range of different ride heights and, and that kind of thing. So you're, I presume you're looking for slightly different things from your run plan than you might have done with a conventional top body upgrade of 2021, for example. Yeah, you are. Uh, the, the big thing really, I suppose, is to say that uh, these cars are producing a much bigger percentage of downforce from the underfloor than they were in the past. 
Um, it was probably, you know, I don't know, just rough, rough estimates. 25% of the downforce of the car would be produced by the, the, the floor and the diffuser. Um, and part of that would be the barge boards as well. So they were a big, big part of it. You know, the barge boards themselves were probably responsible for 15% of the car's downforce. So the, the floor itself um, was a big flat area. It didn't really, you couldn't do very much with it. You could lengthen it, shorten it, you know, change the edge of it, try and seal it better, all sorts of stuff. But they were, they were genuinely fairly small returns. Um, but now it's a big return, so you've got to you've got to really focus on it because again, the, the underfloor now is producing well in excess of fifty percent of the downforce of the car, so it's a major part of it. And obviously, um, you know, if you take the underfloor, the efficiency of that underfloor is probably you know ten to one somewhere up in that region. It's very very efficient itself, um, whereas the rear wing itself is probably three and a half to one. So. You know, what you want to do is have an underflow that's producing lots and lots of downforce, very stable centre pressure, be able to run smaller wings on the car, or smaller rear wing in the car, which is very draggy, um, to, to get the straight line speed. And if you can do all that, then you've sort of got a red bull. Um, and that's what everybody's trying to achieve, because you know, at the end of the day, that's what they've got. They've got a car that's producing the downforce quick around the corners, quick in the straight, even quicker in the straight with the DRS, and they can control the platform. So they've you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's on a big, big percentage of the car, a much bigger percentage of the car than than other teams have done. And that's the thing. You know, no team out there knows 100% of what really makes the car function correctly. But there's one team always pops up um, knowing more than the rest. And and this this point in time, it's, it's Red Bull. And one interesting thing as well is obviously this is something that you've got experience of, but most people don't when you go to an event like this as mercedes obviously this is not just a normal upgrade it is a change of direction it's almost the start of the recovery and it validates all the work they've done so there's a quite a lot at stake here isn't it it has to work if it doesn't work then they'll be looking back to think oh right there's something else we haven't found that we need to correct so what's it like when you go into a weekend when you have an upgrade that has so much at stake, and then what happens when it works, and what happens when it doesn't work? Because I imagine you'll have been through both in your time. Well, you know the reality is, and a lot of people have said it in the past. Um, I suppose you know Jensen Button was one of them. Whenever he drove the Braun the first time, you know by the time you go around two laps, three laps, you know if you've got a good car or if you haven't got a good car, because it just gives you the feedback feeling in the car that it just feels all stable. Um, so in the in the Mercedes garage this weekend, there's probably those first three laps or five laps that each driver goes out and does. There's going to be a fair amount of fingers crossed, um, and it's, do you know then basically if you're going to have a, an uphill struggle or whether it's suddenly oh this is okay let's polish it you know. Um, it's it's never that easy, but you definitely get a direction from the car, and then after a couple of little setup changes and the car if the car responds to those setup changes. Um, because you're trying to optimize the car after a couple of setup changes and the, it goes the right direction, you think, yeah, okay, you know, this is a, this is working, this is a decent package. Um, but if you do a couple of setup changes and the opposite happens or nothing happens, you know, put a, bit, a little bit more front wing on because you had a little bit of understeer and suddenly you got more understeer, then there's a different reason for those sort of things happening than the logic, logic sort of dictates. That's whenever you really sort of sign it off. But I think the initial impression over that first little bit uh, of the first session will be important. And it's it's also important to make sure you don't con yourself, you know. Don't do anything that's 
abnormal. You know, don't run it on the on the sniff of an oily rag for the first ten minutes because you just want to sort of you know get a, set up a good lap time. Um, you really have to do your job diligently and make sure that you, you work within the parameters of what you believe is the right the right way of working over a weekend to get the best out of any package, and that means doing all your homework correctly. So. Uh, you know, initial initial feedback from the driver, even though the lap time might not be there, is vitally important. You know, if suddenly the driver feels confidence in the stability of the car, um, the car reacts to you know having a little bit of understeer, you put more steering lock on it, and it still grips and doesn't just understeer more. All that sort of stuff, all those little transient conditions. That's what the driver feels, and that's what he wants to come back and tell you. It doesn't matter if you got. 10 kilograms of fuel, 50 kilograms or 100 kilograms in it. That's what you want to sort of find out, the, the, the way the driver reacts to what the car is doing. And then you know you can simulate the fuel load easy. You know, that's easy enough to take to sort it out. Three-tenths of a second or whatever it is per, for 10 kilograms, that's just a number. So you don't have to go out there and show to the world that I've got a really quick car, unless it's real. You know, What we see with the Red Bull quite often is, it's, you know, with Verstappen, it's usually quite difficult to go slow. You know, he goes out and drives the car to, it, to how it feels. And that's important as well, because the car will be a different beast driving it at nine tenths to driving it at ten tenths. So it's quite important to give the feedback based on how you're going to drive the car, knowing that, you know, there's a little bit more track I can use, knowing that you, I can brake a little bit later, but you do everything you can as near to to the, the limit as possible every lap because that feedback's really important. Yeah, and it's going to be the big talking point of the weekend will be upgrades in general specifically that Mercedes one obviously will be taking a close look at that and the real acid test for Mercedes will be when your article comes out on the race taking a look at the uh, at the car once we've got enough images as to whether you think it's in the right direction or not but yeah new front suspension floor side pods and the engine cover I think will change a bit they said they've had to change a bit under the bodywork in order to get the new side pod geometry fitting so Hopefully, it's going to be quite interesting visually, and we'll be taking a very close look at that with Gary, as always. Our interview today is all about the technology of F1's television offering, which, like all sports broadcasting, has evolved hugely over the past few decades. And Gary, this is a topic close to your heart. You've worked for FOM in the past on the TV coverage, and obviously you're very, very big and always have been very big in how Formula One has presented itself to the fans watching and how it connects them to what's a very complicated sport. So what do you make of the current output in general and how much it's changed? Well, it's changed a lot. Um, I'd like to go back, first of all, to... One of my first ventures was a camera on a on a on a racing car. Um, we were doing some testing at Paul Ricard many years ago with James Hunt and McLaren. Nineteen, I think it was nineteen seventy seven, and um, we had this French TV company come along and they wanted to do some stuff. Again, I think it was for Monaco that they were going to try and put a camera on the car on the, on the rollover bar. Uh, it, was a, it was a it was a camera. You know, you saw it was a camera. It was a big camera, um, and uh, they come along, strapped it all on there, all quite happily. And uh, off went James out for a, a lap with this camera running to sort of see what sort of pictures it would pick up. And that time, Paul Ricard, this, the pit lane was split into two, two halves. In other words, you come out of the last corner, turned right into the pit lane. The first half of the pit lane then exited over a bridge onto the, the, the front straight. And uh, the second half of the pit lane, cars came in under that bridge and exit at the end of the pit lane. And we were down at the end of the pit lane. As we, you know, we had been for any test that we've done there. We had this garage that was all set, set up for us. 
Um, and the James did a couple of laps and then came around to come into the pits and we all sort of went, didn't he tell him to come in the top entry and not under the bridge? Nope. And he came under the bridge and there was no camera. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it did a lot of damage, I have to say. Um, the car was okay, but the camera was definitely secondhand after that. So going from there to, uh, to technology currently, I think we've got some fantastic um, TV shots. I mean, to a level that it's, it's now, it gets better all the time, basically. That's all you can say. Um, the, the thing that, you know, I spent a little bit of time in 2014 with, with FOM and it was when the, uh, the, the hybrid engines were introduced and the noise was, you know, pretty bad. The, the thing was that, you know, the microphones and whatever on the, on the, on the, on the barriers picking up the car sound were all still placed in the, in the same position as they were for the high screaming engines of, of yesteryear. Um, so they're at the end of the straight, basically, where the engines were always singing and dancing. But the hybrids don't do that. You know, they're, that's the end of the straight is where they're, they're quietest. So a bit of skullduggery with the cameras, moving them around a bit, moving them in the car, um, you know, all that sort of stuff with the, uh, with the microphones that fed the cameras helped the noise and sound a little bit. But all the other stuff, the graphics that we're seeing, you know, the, the tires, the type of tire that was on the car when you did the lap time, the, the tire you're using currently, all that, when it all works correctly, and I have to say there are a few occasions when it seems to trip up and not be there, um, then I think it's very informative for, for anybody sitting outside of it. You know, the things that you like to know is, you know, who did what and what tire, um, because that's there's such a big difference, you know, running a brand new tire to running an old tire or running the... Um, a medium to, to hard to soft, there's always, you know, that three, four, half a second difference. So it makes a big difference to see it on TV and have to get your head around it knowing that, you know, Joe Bloggs hasn't had a run on soft tires yet. Um, he's down in ninth place. That's going to be pretty good because take half a second away from his time, he's going to be up in third or fourth. So the more information you can get if you're, if you're a viewer um, and even a viewer with experience like I am, it, it's better. You definitely have a, see a better show. I would like to know a little bit more about uh, whenever we get the heavier fuel runs. Um, sort of separate that from the, the, the fastest lap because, okay, we see it and we see it's you know, five seconds or six seconds slower, but that's okay. But where's the other guys that are doing the same sort of fuel run? Um, so there's, there's always more to do, but as far as what we've got now, it's, you know, it's obviously fantastic and they do a great, a great, a great job at, at getting the show on the road. I mean, it's a huge operation to do that. Um, and it's, it's not a cheap operation. Um, so yeah, part in the back to all involved with that because it's, uh, it's getting better. It's got a lot better and it's getting better every day. Yeah, and certainly for those who remember watching Formula One 20, 30, 40 years ago, completely transformed in terms of uh, in terms of what you get. So it was interesting to uh, to hear from the horse's mouth what they were doing. So our guest today is Dean Locke, F1's Director of Broadcast and Media. He's worked for F1 and has been heavily involved in the television coverage for a quarter of a century and therefore offers a unique perspective on the evolution of the coverage and the remarkable technological effort required to bring it to our screens. So here's my interview with Dean Locke. <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Dean Locke, the Director of Broadcast and Media. Thanks for joining us. Can you just give a quick outline of what you're actually of what your actual job is as Director of Broadcast and Media? Hi, Ed. Yes, I can. Um, Director of Broadcast and Media. So, Broadcast and Media incorporates multiple departments, 
and fundamentally we look after all content and uh elements that you're going to see and the viewers and the fans will watch formula one so across multiple platforms we uh, provide that whether that's the traditional broadcast feeds whether that's digital social f1 tv um, all of those various elements and the departments that incorporate broadcast and media are involved in engineering onboard cameras audio live production post-production digital um, digital operations, digital technology. So anything really to do with media for Formula One. Excellent. A nice broad uh, overview, therefore, you've got of the, the whole operation. Perhaps we could start off by outlining the, the scope of the operation and the amounts of just sheer technology involved in bringing uh, a live broadcast with all of those elements you mentioned from a, a Grand Prix track, which is obviously a pretty large area to be covering. Yes, of course. We we have two. It's easy to describe it in two operations. So here in sunny Kent, Biggin Hill, we have our media and technology centre. Um, we have a race system side, which is more to do with the race services and timing of the event and the elements for the teams. But on the broadcast and media side, um, we've just finished. We uh, started it just after Abu Dhabi and finished it for Bahrain testing our new look. Uh, media and Technology Centre, uh, which hosts all our operation of all the media. Um, so whether that's editing or the live production, the directors, the producers are all based here. And then at the event, we have an event technical centre, um, which some of you, you know, if you've been to a track may have seen or even seen on camera or helicopter shot is a silver building. And in there is acquisition for all the data and all our media points as well. So cameramen are at track, uh, audio people and interviews and, and talent are at track and uh, the curation of all those um, data, video, all those signals really is all done here at the Media and Technology Centre to produce all the feeds and, and programming. And of course, with that split, that's shifted a little bit in the past few years, hasn't it? I guess first through necessity because of COVID, but also because of the wider picture of sustainability and trying to reduce the amount of travel. So how much has that changed over the last three or so years in terms of how much you're able to do not on site? Dramatically, really, it has changed. As you said, it was forced on us by COVID. We took a, uh, we brought forward a five-year plan into, I think, about you know nine to 12 weeks um, to do a remote operation. And just what we did over this winter to make that a permanent housing and a permanent um, sort of structure and consideration was the you know the next step for that. We ran up, ran with it for two to three years, as it was. Uh, but it was still the containers that we used to ship around the world were just put into a hangar here at Biggin Hill. So it wasn't the best place to work. And now we've made that sort of fit for purpose. Um, it's hard. It's very hard to compare, actually, to 2019 because we're doing so much more. So any new element that we do, whether that's F1 TV, F1 Live, whether that's the you know the massive increase in digital programming or any enhancements or technology that we've brought into the World Feed programming as well, is all done here at Biggin Hill. So nothing really ends up at track unless there's a very good reason for it. Um, and, and therefore, it's not really comparing apples to apples to, you know, just saying, well, We've cut this much freight, this many people, which we did dramatically. Um, but actually, that's been an ongoing process all the way through. Um, 
And it, 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 I've done a few races back here last year, and I'm planning to do a lot more actually races back here because it's a really good environment to work in. And the producers and the directors and all the editors, we're doing commentary from back here, uh, you know, multiple races as well. We have a new bespoke studio to do here. Um, you know, there's still elements you need to do at track. Um, and whether that's technology wise, because which, which don't have the, uh, connectivity potentially to do everything, you know, back here, or it's just to bring to the fans exactly what's going on on the track. We don't have robot cameramen, so all the cameramen and audio people are all there as well. Well, you mentioned connectivity there. That's obviously one of the big challenges because you need to be able to do everything in real time from Biggin Hill, and you're dealing with all sorts of different geographical locations. So how do you ensure that you've got that necessary speed of data throughput to actually make that work because i guess if you have too much of a lag it just becomes unworkable yes you're you're quite right and we've just done the race in australia which is probably one of our biggest challenges on many levels you know people working in england through the night is a challenge but also as you said it's it's our furthest race really um it's good you know we have a you know i have a great partner in in um in providing us that connectivity um the the delays were talked about when we were discussing remote operations. There was a lot of talk about latency and delay. And actually, we overcame that very, very quickly. Um, you know, to, to give you some sort of figures, you know, data from cars and teams, really, and from timing beacons around the track is, you know, to our event technical center is probably 10 milliseconds. You know, it, it's pretty small. I think what we were working on or that latency in Australia, which is our worst one, is about 250 milliseconds. And, you know, when we go to a place like Austria, you'll get that down to, you know, 150, um, potentially even less. Um, there is a little element about the way that the crews work. Um, uh, you know, if, uh, if the main director asks the track director to hold a shot, sometimes he's actually already taken the next shot. Uh, which is incredibly frustrating because he can't turn back time. But it, uh, they got to grips with that very, very quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, we use those delays in some elements, but it's uh, the, the technology there. It's also about redundancy. So what if we have a problem with our connectivity? So we have a full redundancy system that we can switch to a satellite broadcast um, and satellite uplinks from the track as well. Um, so, yeah, we've, we, we've sort of tweaked and, and created a you know a very a very clever system and looking at the challenge of actually bringing the the sound and the visuals from from the track for an average circuit how many kind of cameras and microphone positions are you needing just to do the the track side action well as you know subtracks are very different um so something from austria you know compared to a really camera hungry like uh saudi arabia or somewhere like that but on average um there's about 50 cameras, about 30 around the track. Um, then we have seven, five to seven roaming cameras in the pit lane. We have cable cameras, helicopters, fixed pit wall cameras, studio cameras or press conferences. Um, and then on the cars, we roughly have about 80 to 90 onboard cameras across the 20 cars, um, actually also including the safety car. Um, so there's a lot of inputs. Uh, microphones, approximately, we do 5.1 surround sounds. So we have about 150 microphones around the track as well. Um, some tracks, easier than others. You know, really close, to, really close to the action where we're going next, somewhere like Baku. 
a little bit easier than you know big runoff areas like somewhere like Bahrain. Really. Uh, obviously the the sound is something that's been a big talking point probably for about 10 years now ever since we had the uh, the engine formula change but how much work has been done in terms of improving the capture of that audio because thinking back to 2014 one of the things i found quite striking was that the engine sounded much better when you're actually standing there trackside compared to how they came over on the television and that has improved over time i guess is an ongoing thing so uh, there must be quite an art to that sort of positioning and trying to actually get that sound quality and that impact that is actually there even if it's a little more subtle than maybe it was with the uh, the old school engines i think you're right i think audio sometimes is a sort of forgotten medium of our sport isn't it really um and how important it is yes it's continual it's still going on now i had um our head of onboard cameras in my in my office yesterday talking about a new microphone placement and a new microphone so we're continually doing it. We our audio department around the track really work hard. They also want to reflect the event, so we want to hear the want to hear the cars. But you know, there's some of these tracks like Montreal and Melbourne. There's some fantastic crowd noise as well, um, and that is part. We want to try and bring that uh, to the viewers, to the fans of you know what it's like also actually being trackside, being the event. So you do hear the cars, but you know, hearing that. The fans react quicker than our cameras sometimes uh, at turn two in Montreal is is also really impactful. So lots of different microphones. As I said, 150 microphones. We're looking at um, even some developments in audio at the moment um, as part of the 23, 24 upgrade or, you know, how can we make that more uh, surround sound as well and really encompassing it. You know, Formula One, you, the pictures you see, is normally cars coming towards you. Um, a long way away sometimes on some big lenses and all the, a lot of the audio is coming out the back of the car. So a lot of sort of, uh, you know, a strategic approach about how we feel that in, but it's just a continual operation. We review, um, post-race, the audio mix of the world feed after a visual. And talking about the actual visuals, again, it's another interesting thing. I, I've regularly have the chance to watch the car's track side and you do see if you're standing there uh, a slightly different you see almost sort of more detail so that there'll also be a great art in terms of improving the cameras and the positioning to get the best effect for the viewers so uh, how much work has gone into that and how much progress has there been into trying to do the cars justice if you like because they can look like they're on rails and they're not but because everything's quite subtle that's that's a difficult thing to communicate visually on a television I agree. I feel like I've spent the majority of my career trying not to slow fast cars down and, and really show the cars in the best of way they can. You know, as you, as you said, they're quite incredible when you see them at the track. It's not just about acceleration, it's also braking. It's, you know, immense. Um, and, you know, less so myself, but, the, you know, certainly the track direction team and the track cut team are, they're, they're all full time. They review all their camera positions after every single race, uh, whether that's a camera they didn't use or whether it didn't tell the story in the right way. Um, and that's why, you know, we moved to a full-time team for our producers and directors, really. So they could, they didn't rush off to another sport, but they choose their, they do football or tennis. Um, they're here reviewing, um, you know, post every race and, and scrutinizing every single camera that's doing the right job. It's a very subjective view sometimes. Um, you know, we get, you know, you talk to ex drivers and they want to see an angle of an overtake. 
um, which is very different, you know, to potentially a viewer wants to see whether that's a high and wide view of an overtake of exactly what lines they took. We had some brilliant overtakes, didn't we, with uh, Fernando Alonso in Bahrain. Um, you know, quite quite incredible ones. And we tried to shoot them in different ways and then way that you want to see the highlights. Do you want to, you know, um, we talk to replay people a lot. You know, we want, it's not just about the event, it's the build up to the event, whether that's an off or whether that's an overtake as well. And because we're covering 20 multiple stories all simultaneously, you know, sometimes we're not always live. So there's a lot of craft in what replays are shown, how we do those replays as well. And we're always looking at new technology and how to cover that. You know, whether that's high motion, slow motion, helicopter angles, onboard angles, uh, to try and portray them. In terms of that spotting things, obviously you've got so many visual inputs, so many camera feeds. Is there any kind of automation, any use of AI to recognise anything out of the ordinary, should we say, that that can help automate that process? Or is it purely manual? You've got to have eyeballs on on screens and say, right, this has happened. Or, or is there some early warning system you can uh, you can use or are working on to try and help that sharpness of reaction? We're, we're moving into that machine learning area a little bit in, in various areas. Not so much um, spotting of incidents or activities. Um, although saying that, we you know we have played around with some machine learning and, and actually working on the back end of some of our AWS work and our AWS graphics work um, in telling stories before they happen. So actually, you know, doing the job of an incredibly good producer of spotting stories before they happen, using all the data, using all the timing data and everything we have. We have that, um, it's a it's really good graphic actually, battle forecast. It's a massive extension of that, of being able to predict stories before they come. How's it going to catch? You know, what's the pit stop window? Has the pit stop window changed? Because we've had four laps under safety car. So there, we are working on a, on a on a concept around that. We are we also break the broadcast down into parts. You know, if you years ago, if you go to a traditional outside broadcast truck, the director at the front a vision mixer at the front, and then a director and a line of producers and an executive producer. We have very much sub-mixes, so a track sub-mix, um, lesser to an extent, a pit sub-mix, an onboard camera sub-mix, and the workflow to bring that together for the main director to bring all those feeds together is very well orchestrated. It's it, it's very well rehearsed as well, and we get good practice. We do a lot. And, of course, you know we're not just doing the race on Sunday. Uh, we're doing all the support series races as well. Um, so there's a lot of rehearsal going on. Um, that's what really helps us try to spot these stories. Of course, um, you know, you can't spot someone making a mistake and slipping on always, but we also have every single camera monitored, um, as I said, and our replay channels as well, and our replay operators. And, and also, I think it's the, the experience and the skill of the crew um, that we have. We have crew here that we've handpicked from other sports. And we've also got through here, they've been here 25 years and onwards and looking at those races. And if we go all the way back to why F1 now does all the host feeds, that was part of that because, you know, the, the local countries that were doing host feeds were picking the best director there, but they were potentially doing one, maybe two races a year at times. And uh, whereas, you know, a, a lot of the crew are doing 20 plus races. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. 
As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. And you mentioned the graphics there that, that are integrated into it. Obviously, there's a huge amount of data being piped through. I think people will be amazed by the data that you, you've got uh, access to. Probably stuff teams aren't very keen on uh, having out there. But how do you go about actually working out the best way to scavenge that data to enhance the show? Because there'd be this temptation to do too much, and then almost the whole <laughs> the whole broadcast becomes a sort of data analysis, which is going too far. And how do you actually achieve that analysis uh, in effectively real time if you're trying to hit pit stop when i guess pit stop jumping is a relatively simple one among those but there's a lot of complicated stuff going on there drawing on a lot of live data yeah i, I could probably talk to you about days at days about how graphics are very complicated on formula one and where you you know where you draw that line and as you said you know there's each car has something like 300 sensors we're picking up 40 40 odd thousand data points every second around the track, you know, whether that's timing or car data, positioning data. Um, there is a lot of data coming in. Um, we also have this real range of audience, you know, in the last few years as well. Um, we picked up a younger audience, a lot of female bands as well, really getting into the sport, which is fabulous, you know, it's what every sport, you know, really dreams of at the moment. Uh, but then we have some fans that are really entrenched viewers. They enjoy Formula One because of the strategy, because of the complexity. Um, as you know very much, it's a really complicated sport and a lot of things happening simultaneously all at the same time. You know, it's it's not a, a stadium sport where it's happening in, you know, in front of your eyes. Um, graphics, we, we spend an awful lot of time. Um, I remember when Ross Broyne, Ross Braun came to Formula One and, uh, you know, he immediately sort of marched over and said there wasn't enough data, uh, wasn't enough information on the screen. Um, you know, and I said, look, Ross, politely, not many of our fans do have their name on the World Championship trophy. Um, so that sort of varied audience, what we're trying to please. And I think we find a balance. Um, we go through a lot of process, a lot of process to look at a graphic. Is it too technical? Uh, do, does it make sense? Is it worth the the real estate on the screen? We have a lot of graphics on screen. If you think, if you look at pictures from 20 years ago, it's well, what we have now, there's a lot more graphics on the screen. And, you know, the sort of premise is they've all got to earn their space. Um, and, you know, whether that's research we do with younger generations or entrenched fans, there is a lot of research going on. We never used to do, actually, um, internally and externally as well. And, just checking that I watch a lot of other sports and actually sometimes this graphic, I know a bit about sports broadcasting and, and sometimes there's graphics. I'm not sure what they're trying to tell. Uh, and that is a real premise that the graphic, okay. Some of them are more, you know, uh, you know, four hour entrenched fans, but they've still got to make sense. And they've got to be, you know, easily to read and understand, uh, not always for every single fan because of the very fans, And also the sessions different. You know, what we might show on a practice session to the, that viewer could be very different to what we show in a race where we have, you know, a lot more viewers and a lot more varied viewers, as I've said. Um, and I think it's, a, as you as you quite rightly said, you know, it could just be numbers, couldn't it? It's, and those numbers have really got to tell a story. So something, you know, we've worked 
you know, a lot over the last few years is telling the story around strategy, Formula One strategy. Okay? You know, a Formula One strategist, I guess, wants to do exactly the opposite of what we want to do. They want to have completely be able to dictate what their car will do from lap one all the way to the finish. And they want to know all the paths that car will take um, and plan ahead and have that. We want unpredictability in Formula One. And we, you know, we want to keep the, the, the fan engaged. Um, so we've got to be able to tell that story, but actually with that, you know, sort of element of surprise. But then we also want to unpack what, you know, what fantastic athletes these drivers are doing and all the elements that they're doing on the car, one-handed, being talked to by their engineer and changing settings and, and try and sort of demystify some of those settings. Um, and working with our own internal, you know, uh, sport team as well. You know, Pat Simmons, quite often I'll, I'll sit with Pat at lunch and, and again, to explain a couple of things to us. So we were able to tell that story in a, in a tangible way. But very difficult. Don't don't get a job in Formula One graphics if you like weekends, nights, and holidays because they work incredibly hard. <laughs> yeah, well, there's just so much to be done there. And I guess you can never do uh, enough in terms of what the potential is. But uh, another topic is the, uh, the, the technology. As I understand it, you've got some pretty cool AI technology being used for some of the, the replays. I'm not right in saying you can use that to enhance the, uh, the, the replay qualities for kind of super slow-mo type, uh, type visuals of incidents? You're right. We did a, we did a trial in Austin um, and a, a smaller trial in Mexico as well with a, with a system. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, Alonso actually grabbed some air on the back straight in Austin. So that replay was a AI slow-mo. Um, actually, that we managed to do. So it seems weird slowing down a really fast sport, um, but sometimes you've got to slow down a really fast sport to explain it, understand it. Create really cool imagery as well sometimes, isn't it? Um, and you know, a slow mo. You know, you have so many frames uh, that we, you can slow down a camera shot before it becomes jittery and jumpy. You know, over the past we've had. Uh, slow motions, super slow motions, and high motions. I think I've seen them all really as they come through. Um, and actually what we're working with now is we only have a certain amount of high motions. They're data hungry. They're quite difficult to manage. They're, you know, they take in a lot of light as well. So at some tracks, they can be quite tricky like Singapore. Um, but actually, how can we make what, – what we've you know, trialed is how can we make all our cameras high motion? So – that failed pit stop or that incredible pit stop as well. How can we do that on a normal pit stop camera or a handheld camera in the pit lane? How can we create that to, you know, to make that, uh, what actually happened on that car? We said, we were showing, slowing a pit stop for two and a half seconds. Great stories that two and a half seconds pit stops can be quite hard. So how can we pick that stuff out? Um, and that's exactly what we did. It, I won't, you know, get too technical with you, but it basically makes up frames. So yeah, they have the physical frames they have. And then it interpolates frames in the middle, which, um, you know, as a broadcast student in my uh, early life would have blown my head off, I think, um, with that technology. But it actually makes up the frames and creates that. And that's what we did with the Alonso catching the air on the back straight. Um, we managed to slow that really down to, it's probably getting on for six, you know, five, six hundred frames a second, something like that. We're also 4K broadcaster. So we're talking, you know, 4K in high motion, incredibly data hungry. Um, and that's exciting, you know, whether that's helicopter, um, our cable camera in the pit lane, or as we said, you know, handheld RSF. So we'll be able to improve the quality 
um, and make up frames, then, uh, yeah, that's really exciting. We should be doing some more trials for that throughout this year. One of the visuals that I personally always remember that didn't seem to last that long, so I'll take this opportunity to ask about it. I think about 2009, uh, way back then, there were some experiments with kind of ghost cars by sort of overlaying cars over each other. I always remember there was a, a great shot from Valencia when Ferrari had Badoa and Raikkonen, and you could see Badoa braking later, but then losing all the time. And yep. I, I remember at the time being said that was a very labour-intensive thing to do, so it wasn't necessarily rewarding, but I thought it was one of the best visualisations of how a car produces its its speed is there any possibility of seeing something like that again yes. purely a personal thing because i just thought it was really good <laughs> yes definitely i'm happy to say yes to that uh to the question will you see any more of that um it's i mean that in 2009 that was it was actually i think it was a golf swing simulation tool we actually used for that, where you overlay golf swings um the problem we had and we used it a lot in practice session um, was what were the two cars doing? You know, were they at the same fuel load? Were they on the same setup and things like that? So there's an element of distrust about the shots. So actually what we really need to do is do it in race mode, do it in qualifying mode when we know the cars you know, are set up to give a, a you know a like for like comparison. But doing it live is the is the real target. You know, we're not in a stadium, so we have cameras all around, you know, all around the track. Uh, we're not permanent structures you know, going in and out of Melbourne. The, even the fences aren't there. So, uh, you know, a lot of some of this stuff you see in the stadium sport is permanent rigs and permanent structures. So, so how do we do that? But we are looking at, again, we did a small trial last year, I believe, which was relatively successful. It's the turnaround of the clips as well, how quickly. But there are some good stories, you know, whether that is just, the, you know, uh, racing lines, hitting apexes, um, or it's the distance between two cars in qualifying has always been, you know, like like the rowing, isn't it? Looking at the World Championship line, you know, chasing a, chasing a line, which is already P1 line. But um, those comparisons you, you should see. We're looking at some technology at the moment, um, maybe even doing it on the helicopter, which is the best view of some of these angles as well. Um, makes it even harder because there isn't a cable to a helicopter. So that's, you know, done, done over radio frequency. So... Um, but yeah, we are looking at some stuff. There's some other sports that are doing really well. Yeah, whether that's sort of America's Cup and some of the technology around there and sailing and um, how they do that. So yes, we are looking at racing lines. We are looking at that sort of what you've seen some elements actually already that we do on the onboard cameras, the tagging of the car in front. And there's a, a strip a strip between the two cars showing the time and the distance. It's actually furthering some of that technology to be able to overlay cars visually. Excellent. Well, I'll certainly look forward to uh, some of that appearing because I always find that uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, another bit of technology that we have started to see in recent years has been the use of drones and that kind of thing. Obviously, there's a lot of aerial shots on the helicopter because obviously there's some practicality uh, problems, I guess, to having drones patrolling all the time. But how have you gone about integrating drones into the F1 coverage? And is that an area where there's quite a lot of potential, do you think? I think there is potential for drones in Formula One, but I think we're chasing the technology a little bit. Um, so, you know, if you look at something like downhill skiing, there's some really incredible shots I've seen, um, you know, just this, this winter got. And, but there is one skier. So the drone can stay behind the skier. If we stay behind a car, there's normally another car, you know. So working really closely with the FIA to make sure the safety procedures are, are 
you know, in line. Um, we've, we've, we have sold out events everywhere these days. Um, so, you know, going to a track where there are many fans, is also, you know, very, very long gone. So we have to be incredibly careful and safe to the fans of the track. So, you know, there's a lot of rules around, you know, thousand people per square kilometer and things like that. So there are tracks where the infield in Austin, you probably, you know, have seen some activity um, where it's a little empty. We could brief the marshals, but uh, there is a drone um, flying. So we can do that. We've done some elements around Austria and Barcelona where there's some areas that we can use it. Um, Formula One is still incredibly quick. Um, and drones are quick, but they're not as quick as Formula One cars. Um, and our twin engine helicopters have trouble keeping up Formula One cars. And so, so we're, we're looking at the technology as it comes out. You know, is that a racing drone? But then uh, your flying time, because batteries are a little bit less powerful. Also, we've got to get a signal off the camera live. It, you see these incredible drone shots from non-live sports as well now, you know, some highlights. Um, and it really increases the production value. But most of our outputs are liable. Most of our content capture is live. So then we've got to beam that signal. We're also a 4K broadcaster, so we can't have it looking uh, a little bit cloudy, a little bit shaky as well. Um, so I think as that drone technology increases, you will see it. And I think we're always in communication with um you know, based on the partners, really, of what they can do and how they can help us out. Um, but it, it still goes to a, a lot of rulings. You know, it, you know, over cities, we have to have twin-engine helicopters. I don't think we're necessarily replacing the helicopter because I think there's a certain viewpoint for a helicopter. I think if we if we get over that hurdle of, um, you know, drones being quick enough and being uh, efficient to use in Formula 1, it would actually be a new shot. There actually be a new angle that we see, you know, like a massive rail camera or, you know, similar to we have a brilliant cable camera at Silverstone, which I always think does a really great shot. It's sort of mimicking shots like that and doing things that we, that we can't currently do, actually. So I think we will be there, but I'm not 100% sure it will be this year. Do you have a, a personal favourite bit of TV technology that's used in F1, perhaps one we haven't talked about? I don't know whether <laughs> whether you'd have uh, favourite ones, but ones that have made an impact, maybe something that people hadn't really clocked because it's not obvious, but really does enhance the experience. Hey, that's a really, really good question. I almost not planned for it, but I think I just mentioned the cable camera and Silverstone. I think that is an incredible part of the track and incredibly unique angle. It's really difficult to rig that camera, uh, normally on a back-to-back -back race as well. Um, but I always feel that it is worth it. Um, I think I, I like, you know, I like the tracks like Montreal and going to Baku soon, you know, um, where we're really close to the wall and being able to embed, you know, cameras into the walls to really get, you know, to see how, and actually we're working on a, you know, we're working on actually a new graphics come up this year as well. You know, how every single lap these drivers are just, you know, centimetres, you know, uh, away from the apex or centimetres away from the wall. Incredibly accurate. How we tell that story um, is really good. I really like the introduction of the helmet camera. I think that that really blew people away of the viewpoint for the driver. Um from the car and, and what they're doing in the car, you know, where, as I've mentioned before, you know, settings on the steering wheel. I thought that was really, I was really pleased with the introduction of the helmet camera and how that's, you know, brought a new sort of dimension 
to the coverage as well. Um, and from a technology standpoint, we already mentioned those AI slow mos absolutely blow my head off from a from a, a, a technical point. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, but yeah, really interesting. And just as a final question, what's the future of the the F one? OTT platform, obviously, F1 TV, people have become very familiar with those who've uh, got access to it, and that's really enhanced the experience. So so what's the future for that in terms of its spread and its enhancement? I think F1 TV um, is a great addition. So, you know, to work alongside our broadcast partners as well. I think the, you know, the incredible archive and library you can do now uh, and the video on demand and the programming on it is, you know, watch it anytime you want is really important. Um, I think how we deliver it, you know, is probably, you know, one of the sort of best in class. Um, it, it really offers the viewing experience for our fans. And we're look, always looking at ways of getting even more content to the fans and on, on different devices as well and using, you know, really reliable platforms, like AWS platforms, um, to deliver that. I think it's all about t- tailoring your experience, isn't it? So firstly, watching it when you want to watch it and how you want to watch it and on, on what system. And of course, some of our broadcast partners do this as well. But also, you know, being able to choose your onboard cameras, being able to choose the way you digest team radio. Um, potentially, you know, in the future, how you digest the graphics. Um, we bought in some, you know, some very F1, F1 live programming as well, which works across all the regions. You know, you know, there's a huge number of regions that F1 TV covers, and you know, and even the commentary working across all those regions as well, whether it's their first language as well. Um, but yeah, always looking at that sort of tailoring the experience for the fans, so the fan can sort of choose the way they watch it and uh, and digest the sport as well. But it's got to be the right technology that sort of delivers the greatest value. Excellent. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Thanks very much for the insight into the the F1 uh, TV output. And uh, thanks for bringing so much enhancement to the enjoyment of Formula One fans around the world. Thank you, Ed. Always a pleasure. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at therace.com or record a voice note and remember to include your name that we can play on the show. We've got two questions today. And the first question comes from Trevor Lynn, who says, I'm encouraged by Ed Straw's comment that there are no such things as stupid questions and I will say yeah that definitely applies sometimes you might get stupid answers from me but uh, no stupid questions definitely so I'd encourage anyone to write in and Trevor continues hopefully this one won't change his mind Several of the ground effect cars of the 1980s dispensed altogether with front wings and only had vestigial rear wings, presumably because they generated so much downforce from the Venturi tunnels under the car. With the reintroduction of ground effect and the desire for closer racing, would it be feasible for modern F1 to ban the front and or rear wings and rely on ground effect for grip? And would this lead to closer racing and remove the need for DRS? Keep up the good work. Well, Trevor, yeah, um, I will sort of back up Ed's... Ed's, uh comment about never a, never a stupid question and the thing is with answers they're an opinion as well you know we do our best to bring you the, the, the correct opinion on on most stuff but obviously you know there's teams of engineers out there huge amounts of engineers all trying to force their way through and find solutions to problems so we're only bringing an opinion from an individual and uh, 
not always right, but we try our hardest to be as near right as possible, or to give you at least a guidance. So on your on your thing about the um, the ground effect cars of the well, late seventies, really early eighties, um, yes, they, they they were producing, and that at that point in time they were producing massive amounts of downforce compared to what they were before ground effects was introduced. And, uh, and as everybody found that you know they were producing massive amounts of downforce, then people wanted to produce more downforce with it because it was such a big step. So the, the underfloor tunnel design got changed, you know, dramatically in, in, in the direction of more downforce. In other words, the, the throat of the tunnel, if you imagine a ground effect car of, the, of that era, it was like a wing upside down. Um, so basically it had a, a throat area, the lowest point of that wing, um, and then the, 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 the rest of it, the, the trailing edge of the wing as such, was a bit like a diffuser and you were expanding the flow, and then you had sliding skirts to seal it. So underneath the car was a massive low-pressure area. The peak of the low-pressure would be in the throat area, um, just just behind the throat area where the air was accelerated at the, at the maximum. So the further forward you got that throat area, and the lower to the ground you got that throat area, the more downforce you could produce. But then along came massive porpoising. And I do remember Leger at Monza going past the pits, and... Coney had, was, a, was a damper specialist at that time, and Coney had brought out um, some very high rebound uh, dampers to try and control the ride height. Um, so, you know, as I say, looking then, which is what, um, 80s, uh, 20, 40, 43 years ago, um, nothing much has changed. It was all, all about controlling that, that, uh, that height, making it as, as consistent as possible. And I remember the, the Leger going past the pits at Monza, and the front wheels were coming off the ground with porpoising. You know, the, the dampers were so stiff and rebound that the actual the, the peak downforce from the car got near the ground and then released because of its stalling was lifting the front wheels off the ground. Um, you know, it was quite scary at that point in time, to be honest, and that's you know, when things started changing. Um, so people realized that actually a lot of downforce was very good, but you know, double it, and it wasn't much better. Actually. It brought so many other problems with it. So even teams that at that point in time had uh, like holes in the front of the skirts that they could open up or close up depending upon how the porpoising was or the centre of pressure just to make it a little bit less efficient. Um, the last thing you wanted was a skirt that would stick up because you know that was a sort of surprise to the driver. He still needed uh, consistency as anything did. But as you say, with the, with the downforce producing so, much, so big a numbers from the underfloor, then teams... And and, the, and that tunnel effect, that that throat effect, going further and further forward, then front wings were sort of redundant. They they either had just a very small single element trim tab type thing on the front of the car, which you could just change that little bit, um, just to get the balance. Um, the rear wing, I wouldn't quite agree with you that they become very small. They 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 probably were smaller, but just the rear wing was still a a bigger component really relative to the front. Um, because you know you didn't produce the rear downforce with it. As you moved that that throat of the tunnel forward, it produced more front downforce, but it didn't really produce more rear downforce. So the underfloor centre pressure was moving forward all the time. And then some teams started, including ourselves, uh, McLaren started to look at actually raising the throat of the tunnel a bit, uh, keeping it forward but raising it so it wasn't as critical to the ground. Um, and you know there was progress made to, to sort of. I don't know, make the car a better car to drive because it's one of those sort of things where they were so planted at that point in time. There was so much grip besides a car that had just a rear front and rear wing on it. You know, it was three, four times the amount of downforce. So you're talking huge numbers. So yes, 
the front wing became more or less redundant in a lot of cars. Would it make a difference right now? Um, yes, it would. Um, if the front wing wasn't there, uh, the car would be more consistent for sure in in uh, traffic. Um, but you would need the, the underfloor design to suit that. You know, the center of pressure of the car is the important thing. It needs to be in the right position. It needs to stay as stable as possible, or at least to do what you want with it. The normal thing you'd want to do was to move the center of pressure forward a little bit with lower speed um, and move it rearwards with higher speed. So you get more confidence in the rear of the car in the fast corners, a bit less understeer in the lower in the slower corners. Um, so you need it's not just take the front wings, front and rear wings off the cars. It's a matter of making sure you do the whole aerodynamic regulations to suit that. And I think you could end up with a better car in traffic, a more consistent car in traffic. But the whole regulation package would need to be done to to optimize that that effect. It could be done. Would it be better? You'd lose grip out of it because, again, as I say, the, the underfloor produces 50 plus percent of the downforce. So that means the, the front and rear wing are producing 40 plus percent of the downforce. So if you take away 40 percent of the downforce and a car that's not in traffic, then you know, you'll have a slower racing car. So everything's got to compromise and uh, might not be the right time just to get as excited as that. One thing I would suggest is maybe you know, going from a four element front wing to a three element front wing, which would reduce cost, complexity, um, reducing the amount of wings you could you could build per season. So you had to run, put a wing on the car, and the first time it left the pit lane, it had to stay on for four or five races, let's say. You know, so you know you'd end up with a, a compromise between these next three races are interesting: Emila to Monaco to Barcelona. You know, you you could see two different wings at least on the teams for those three races, uh, maybe even three. Um, with my way of looking at it, you'd end up with one wing would have to do all. So a bit less grip for Monaco, a bit less speed and straight for Barcelona. So, you know, it'd be the compromise. The compromise would be bigger on the wing design, but it would reduce the amount of wings that any team had, and it would reduce the amount of, t- amount of changes you would do from race to race. So there, there is things I think could be done to A, help cost, uh, and B, um, make the decisions harder for the teams to take, but they're not going to happen overnight. Yeah, and of course, the 2026 cars are in the planning stage at the moment. There's talk about movable aero and various other tricks being introduced then. So interesting to see how that direction plays out. Our second question is simply from Robert, who says... I noticed that during the Miami Grand Prix, watching on board with Max Verstappen, that nearly every other lap, Max was getting radio messages from his engineer about corners he could improve on. The messages could be something like, use this brake bias for this corner, or these two corners are where you're losing to Checo, and a lot of display eight, position six, etc. At one particular point, Max's engineer said something like, we've made a brake bias set up for turn six and seven. If you want to use it, press the red button. I took this to mean that the team were literally analysing data mid-race of the car's brake and balance performance in specific corners, perhaps relative to Checo, and then configuring a software package and remotely binding it to Max's steering wheel so he only has to press a button and not individually configure any brake bias change himself, or even correctly identifying which brake bias is best. Thus, Max was improving lap performance, tyre management mid-race with his team's help. Is this something new? Not brake bias changes in general, which I know happen, but the team mid-race developing corner-specific programmes enabled by Max pressing a button. I tried to research it, but there's very little on mid-race brake bias changes and whether it is the driver or team doing them. Is this something unique to Red Bull, to Max? I've gone on board with other teams and I could not identify other teams doing something similar. If this is slightly unique, then Red Bull are once again doing a great job. Well, um, yeah, it's actually against the regulations to send any 
anything to the car other than radio uh, radio messages. Uh, you're not allowed to do that on the, on the warm-up lap to the grid. Other, other than that, you're allowed to have radio contact uh, with the driver and tell them you know, about setup changes, tell them about tyre temperatures, tyre pressures, all that stuff that the team are analysing. And it's a big team of people that are analysing it. Most teams will have a, a structure of maybe 20 people back at the factory sitting there and their job will be to look at data and, uh, and see where things are going out of the working window, I suppose you might call it. And they'll also be checking one driver against the other, in this case, Max against Checo. So the team could advise them on a brake balance setup for a certain corner, but they couldn't change the, 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 the mapping, I suppose you might call it, um, via uh, telemetry. They would have to tell them on, you know, to go to level six for you know, slow speed corners and level eight for high speed corners or vice versa, differential settings. You know, they can advise on all of that. Um, and they can advise on you know the brake balance because of the tire temperatures. So there's there's lots of advice the driver can, the driver can receive from the team, but the team can't change anything you know remotely. I suppose that's the best way of putting it. It has to be done by the driver. So um, I looked through the regulations as well, and again they're they're quite hard to read unless you sit down and read them day in day out. You know to pick them up and, and read them and take something from it is is not an easy task. And they've got more and more difficult over the over the, the duration of the, the seasons that I've been involved with it. But um, any team will be advising their drivers to a certain extent. Some drivers like to chat with the, the engineer, you know, get the information required all the time. Some drivers don't. They like to just get on with the job. Kimi Reckon was a typical example. You know, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Um, radio comments, which is, he said many, many times. Other drivers, you know, rely on their engineer to be that third party that gives them a hand to 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 do the job that they, they they're not doing. You know, sometimes you need to just drive the car um, and be informed of other things. One one thing you need to recognise is where the driver is happy to hear messages from. You know, you don't want to to tell them in the middle of El Rouge, for example. You know, to to you know use brake level six at corner nine width to you at a point where you know the driver's not focusing on his job, give him some information and, and then let him pick it up as, as necessary. So every team does the same thing. I didn't hear the, the actual instance that you've said you've heard on the, on the, uh, on the, on the radio um, or on the TV coverage. So it'd be interesting to see if we hear something, you know, at some point in time we'll bring it, uh, you know, bring it back up again. It's, it's one of those things that shouldn't be allowed to send anything by telemetry as far as I know. It should all be radio communication, but not on the first lap to the grid. Yeah, and it's also one of those interesting things that when you're talking about the brake bias, it's a much more complicated thing than it used to be because of the brake-by-wire technology. So that means there's a lot more going on there that the driver can't physically control all of that. There's a lot of it automated. Obviously, we know on brake bias you can't have presets in terms of things that adjust based on where you are on the track because if you remember Renault got done for that I think in 2019 with a system actually they've been using for quite a long time but it was detected that this wasn't actually legal so you're not allowed to do that but there's there's probably at that I mean there are a lot of things preloaded into the car etc that can be uh, manipulated but it's uh, it's the one area where it gets particularly complicated because it's not just a linear thing as it perhaps was in the uh, in the days before we had the the brake by wire yeah, I mean, uh, the brake by wire has changed the braking characteristics quite a lot because most teams use, you know, very small hydraulic brakes on the rear of the car and rely on the the uh, energy recovery system to, to do the braking. 
And that, and that works the car differently. And, and Red Bull, it would be quite an important thing because when you put the brakes on, um, basically it puts, you know, put front brakes, for example, which are just hydraulic brakes, it puts a torque into the suspension system. So your, your, your anti-dive system works because you're putting the load through the wishbones, you're putting a torque into the wishbones, into the chassis. On the rear of the car, the, the anti-lift system that they have on the car, which is fairly critical to its performance, again, when you put your, your foot on the brake pedal, the, the hydraulic part of that um, puts a torque into the rear wishbones and how that affects the car and, and holds the rear of the car down. But the, the uh, electronic recovery system part of it goes through the drive line. So it's a bit like the, like the engine running, but the opposite direction. Um, basically, when the engine's running, it's putting the load into the upright through the wheel bearings. It's pushing the, 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 the suspension forward, but it's not putting a torque into the suspension system. So it doesn't really activate anything different. If you wanted to have lots of anti-squat in the car, you'd have the, the wishbone angles the opposite way to Red Bull. Um, the front leg would be much higher than the, the back leg to, hold, to sort of push the car up in the air as such, to stop it sitting down when, you, when you're leaving the corner. Um, and when you, when you put the energy recovery system on, it does the same. It puts the load the other direction into the, into the upright assembly through the wheel bearing. Um, so it's sort of pulling the car um, down. So the, the anti-lift on the back of, of the Red Bull, because of the energy recovery system, pulls the car down. The, the torque and the, and, the, and the wishbones from the hydraulic part of that braking pulls the car down. So it's quite a different beast to the to past sort of common sense where the torque and the brake system was everything that was uh, was making the car uh, attitude change. So it's a, it's a very complicated thing. And the more errors you have and the more hydraulic braking you have at the rear of the car, you know, that's a balance between those two. Um, so, you, you know, you, you definitely have lots of maps in the car that you could change and optimize. And to be honest, the driver, it's way above the driver probably to think about that at the time. And that's why the team are so important in the background to give them some information. And that's why maybe, maybe there's some sensors that the team shouldn't be seeing. Maybe they should just reduce the sensors that you're allowed or the data that you're allowed to receive, you know, change that a little bit to help um, make the driver more important in the equation as Danny is now. Obviously the driver is still very important driving the car, but he gets so much help from the team as to get the best out of the car. Maybe there's a change there that you could do that would change the, the running order a little bit. Yeah, and it's certainly an area that Red Bull and Verstappen are very good at working on in that race at Miami. It wasn't really till towards the end of the race that he was really happy with everything as it was and was maximising the pace, but they were going through quite an extreme process of, of tweaking and evolving as it went on, which made it quite an interesting one. So thanks to Trevor and Robert for those questions. And remember, if you have a question for us, send it through to podcasts at com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. Thanks as always to Gary for your insights. And of course, there'll be plenty more of that on the race.com during the Imola weekend, where there'll be lots of upgrades to look at and understand. And of course, we'll be back after the Monaco Grand Prix. So join us then for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.